Welcome to the Greta Aurora Show. I have eccentric hat with me to talk about feminism, men's rights, and gender studies, and maybe a few other things. He is an anti-feminist YouTuber and the co-host of MR Radio. Welcome, eccentric hat. Hi, Greta. Thank you for inviting me on. It's an interesting experience for me talking to you because this is the second interview I'm doing within the anti-feminist men's rights activism circle. And the very first person I've spoken to was Peter Wright, mm -hmm. who also hides his identity. It's a very interesting phenomenon that, uh, according to feminism, men's rights activists are agents of the patriarchy, which is the, the ruling force of society. And yet, men's rights activists have to hide their identity, whereas feminists constantly display their identity on their social media. They film themselves, they have Twitter avatars that show their face. Mm. It doesn't match up to the idea of being oppressed, that they are open about their identity and that we are closed about ours. Yeah, exactly. They're as much part of the mainstream as you can get. Yeah, they like to pretend that they're somehow on the fringes of society, they're somehow still a subculture, whereas they're really mainstream culture. Yeah, I, I, um, I do gender studies. Um, I've studied sociology for a couple of years. Uh, I went to a college where I had a very positive experience because the, the head of the department was very, very supportive and uh, had similar views to mine and encouraged me. Whereas uh, in my third year, I went to a university and it was a, a completely different uh, environment because the entire department was just one propaganda machine. And I remember in terms of uh, the speaking of feminist as mainstream, that our gender studies lecturer compared Barack Obama at the state of women summit that that was held a couple of years ago um saying something like women are smarter this is true <laughs> comparing that to donald trump on the bus caught on tape saying you know like i can't help myself women are beautiful and i i, I just go up and start kissing them and if you if you're famous they let you do it and she was saying, you know, although feminism has made strides that it has leaders who will support us, it also has leaders um, who, who will say the most terrible things about women on camera. And I was thinking those two are not comparable in the slightest. Barack Obama was the president of the United States at a summit that was held just to talk about women's issues, speaking on behalf of the, the, the office and the, the country. Whereas Donald Trump was caught on a hot mic 10 years before he ran for president and it almost cost him the run. Like, those are actually opposite. And if anything, they both prove the same point that you have to be supportive of women because even saying something like they will let you do it was still perceived as him uh, ad advocating for sexual harassment. Yeah, that's true. He didn't actually imply he was forcing himself no, he, he did, did emphasise that they let you do it. I mean, I, you know, um, I, I'm not a big fan of what he said, um, but I mean, I can understand that, 
he's he was trying to sound impressive to a guy that he was talking to in private. I'm sure that all of us have said things in private that we would never say in public. And we say it in a jovial way. We know that we're not being overly serious. He's not like um, making some kind of statement. He's uh, bragging, you know, and, and even in uh, bragging in private where he has no idea that this is ever going to come out to anybody, even in that moment, he still makes the addendum that the women are consenting to this because they're letting him do it. I think that says uh, a lot about even the worst of the worst in terms of what people perceive as misogynists. Even they, in the back of their mind, are still aware that you do need to get consent for these kinds of things. It's not, it's not a rape culture. It's not some kind of perverse society where the idea of a woman consenting to something is alien and foreign. Even when a man is bragging to another man in private, they still make these kinds of uh, qualifications. Oh, when you're famous, they will let you do it. To make yeah, sure that the other man understands that there, there is mutual consent here. You know, that's the, a very good point. The women are not being held down and forced into anything against their will. Yeah, we'll come to rape culture in a bit. But first, I'd like to talk to you about gender studies. You've had a bit of legal trouble with the university. You, you were suspended for a few months. At the university, um, I went there for eight weeks and I studied gender studies. And in the, the, the seminars, um, which are different from the lectures. The lectures are where the, the teacher speaks to you for two hours. The seminars uh, is more of a group experience where the lecturer is present, but you're able to ask questions and you're able to raise points. And in the seminar, I would raise counterpoints, not uh, a whole lot and not even ones, um, in my opinion, that are um, particularly radical. Um, you know, certainly nothing... Uh, that you would have to be red-pilled to see. Uh, what was the most controversial thing you said at a seminar? Well, the most controversial thing I said was um, that somebody, we were talking about ways to prevent rape and <clears throat> somebody brought up Rush V and said, here is a guy with millions of followers and he once said that rape should be legal. And everybody was appalled, you know, and I knew the full context of the statement. And I thought to myself, you know, I wouldn't want if I was one of these young women to think that that was true. You know, I would want to know that that wasn't true. That's not actually what happened. I thought it was my obligation to explain to them that what Rush V had actually done was write an article which said it asked a question, it kind of proposed uh, a hypothesis that if you made rape legal in private, if you made it legal on private property, that everybody would be far more careful about who they went home with. Because he said that rape, most of it happens in, in the private uh, domain between two people who already know one another. Mm -hmm. So if you were to make it legal in private, people would not take risks of going home with people that they didn't already know. They would, they would be very certain before they became intimate 
of the other person's intentions. Because he said, basically, in reality, um, it's very difficult to prove rape. It's, it's incredibly difficult to prove, especially when it's between, you know, two people who were both consenting to go to the same place together. It's very difficult to prove uh, that something illegal happened afterwards. The onus is in practice on us to protect ourselves because the law, it finds it incredibly hard to distinguish between the two. Um, and so he said, if you made it legal in private, you would make sure that people didn't take stupid risks because a lot of people think, oh, well, it's illegal and so therefore I'm protected. Whereas in truth, as I said, it's not necessarily something in practice that the law is able to downright prove happened. Um, and I, I said to the class that I disagreed with his hypothesis, um, but that he wasn't advocating that rape should be legal. He was suggesting that if it were legal, people would take more accountability and responsibility um, and basically making the point that we have to look out for ourselves because the law is not able to protect us uh, in, in every situation. Um, uh, but that explaining that came back to haunt me several times. Um, I knew at the time that I was, I was saying something controversial. I knew at the time I had to be very careful about the words that I chose. I, I knew that I had to make it clear, um, you know, that I didn't agree with him, but that he was simply making a, a, a he was simply writing a thought piece. Whereas uh, I got, uh, it, it was repeated several times, um, particularly by the, the lecturer who was present, that I had advocated that rape should be legal in private. So is that what got you suspended? No, uh, basically, as I said, I raised counter arguments and I was careful about what I said. And um, I didn't say anything, in my opinion, that was particularly radical. And even when I had to say that Rushfi thing, and I didn't say it for me because I don't like Rushfi. I didn't say it to defend him because I think he's a great guy. I said it because I was worried that these young women would hear, oh, there's this guy who says rape should be legal and millions of people agree with him. That's, that's not true. That's not what happened. And I didn't want them to believe that's what happened because as someone who suffers from anxiety myself, I don't, I don't think it's fair or right or ethical to let somebody believe lies that are going to haunt them like that. Um, so uh, six weeks into the course, I got called up for an informal chat with the head of the department who sat me down and basically said that I had said things that were making people uncomfortable and said things that were making people nervous. And I had the whole conversation with her and I defended everything that I'd said because I don't believe to this day that I said anything that I shouldn't have. Um, there, was, there was nothing particularly, uh, in my opinion, uh, wrong with anything, that, with the way that I'd approached anything especially if you can uh, understand that that Rush V thing, which I had been very careful about, was by far the worst thing that I'd said. And I would say that I'd still handled that well. But she was, she, you know, she had this very, very like creepy atmosphere of censorship and control, but with a big smile on her face. You know, it was, it was like a, it was, it was like one of those kind of China doll things 
um, you know, where, where it's incredibly creepy because it just smiles at you the whole time. And basically, I, you know, I, I defended myself and, and she said some very, very worrying things to me, things that speak incredibly ill of the department and perhaps of just social sciences in general in this current political climate. She said at the start, she said, did you know coming in that you were going to disagree with your lecturer? And I said, yes, I did. And she said, then why did you take the course? Which is a preposterous thing to ask somebody. Why what did you say? I, I said to her, because I find gender studies fascinating and because feminism does not own gender equality. And what did she say to that? You know, most of the things that I replied, she just went, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I, um, I, I would argue about using facts and using data to back up my opinions. And she would say uh, really disturbing things like, she said, you keep using this word fact, but facts don't exist out there in fact land. In the social sciences, we look to some facts and ignore others. And we, we spin the facts into stories or theories as we call them. And it's like, th these are all direct quotes. You know, I'm not, I'm not emphasizing uh, anything with, with hyperbole. These are all exact quotes. Because um, I took careful note of what she said. And uh, it's like, for example, there was a point where I said, well, there, has, there have been things said in class that have made me uncomfortable. And she was like, okay, like what? And I, I said the same day, when we were talking about that, uh, how, how to prevent rape. Um, uh, one of the girls said, the way to prevent rape is for men to stop being arseholes. And the, the teacher said, yep, there's that argument, certainly. And I, I said to the head of the department, that's a very, very misandrous thing to say. And she said, no, men should stop being arseholes. That would solve most of the problem. Well, I've had my own experience with the social sciences and the way they view facts. I'm just wondering what's coursework like when you do gender studies? Is it mostly essays? Actually, one of the ones we had to do for gender studies was a poster. We had to do a, a, a poster talking about intersectionalism. And I remember mentioning it to my previous lecturer from the college. And he said, that's a bit propaganda, isn't it? That, that we're, we're making these visual art forms to be hung up that just repeat and repeat and repeat the feminist theory. What did you do for your poster? I, I just did it on intersectionalism and actually I did, uh, for the sake of a quiet life, I, I basically told them what they wanted to hear, but I still got a very low grade. And the reasons that I got a low grade were really nebulous. It was things like I'd used the word gender too much and should have used the word sex more or something like that. Um, and I, I basically barely passed. And so I took my work to a lecturer at another university, not even the college that I'd been at. I took it to another university and I asked him to grade it blind. And he gave me an A for it based on like the, the, the content I provided him and the, the marking scheme that was handed out by the university. He gave me an A for it. And I was like, well, that's a substantial difference from the grade that I got. And did you go back to your university to talk to them about it? No, because 
at that point I was under suspension. But the thing is, so so I had that that informal chat with the head of the department. And I thought to myself, it was six weeks in, I was kind of depressed, the classes were awful. And I thought to myself, you know what, I've made my point, you know, hopefully some of these these women in the class will think on what I've said um, and, you know, they, they won't believe everything they're hearing. Um, and so I kept quiet for the next two weeks, but then I got sent a letter that said that this, the university had set up a Senate disciplinary committee to evaluate things that I had said that were perceived as threatening and harassing. So I had to have an immediate meeting. It was, it was made the next day. And I had a, a meeting with a couple of the higher ups with the university who, to, to be fair, were actually quite friendly. But they, they basically told me that I, I'd been accused of making people feel threatened and harassed. And I said, okay, so who did I threaten? And they said, oh, no, no, you didn't threaten anybody, but you made them feel threatened. You know, and I was like, how is that my fault? I can choose not to threaten somebody, but I can't choose how they perceive me. You know, and, and, and they, were, they were like, oh, but, you know, people's feelings are valid and we have to take that into account. And I was like, not if they are in contrast to objective reality, because as somebody who has had a mental health issue and has gone to therapy and, and has spoken uh, a lot about paranoias that I have, my therapist had to tell me, had to train me to use objective reality to, to bring myself back down. You know, I, I had to sort of say, well, how realistic are these fears? How likely are they to impact me? Am I being irrational? If my therapist had said to me, well, you know, all your feelings are valid and, and we have to take that into account, I would still be a, a wreck right now. I would still be uh, uh, incredibly ill at the moment. Whereas because I was taught to use objective reality to quiet my personal feelings, I'm, I'm a much healthier person. And so I, you know, I argued that at best the, the comments were overreactions, but at worst we were validating mental health issues. Because if we say to people, you know, if you hear an opinion you disagree with in politics, that's harassment, then they will feel all of that fear and all of that anxiety. It's not fair for us to actually do that to them. I know, I know it seems on the surface like we're being kind because we're listening to them, but we're actually telling them that they should be afraid, that they should be concerned, that it should burden them. Whereas in truth, what we should say is, well, there's nothing to worry about. It's just a different opinion. And if you feel that he's wrong, you know, bring in facts and prove him wrong. So I was put under protective suspension, which is slightly different from normal suspension. Protective suspension means that if you are found innocent, it won't be put on your record. It won't be held against you. And it took five weeks. Uh, and, and they wouldn't tell me what I was actually accused of for the five weeks. They, like, I was, they told me I was accused of, of making people feel threatened and harassed, but they wouldn't tell me what I'd said and who I'd said it to and when I'd said it. Uh, I wasn't allowed to know any of this stuff. And I told them straight up that I had a mental health issue, I had OCD, and that it was going to drive me nuts worrying about this without any context. 
and they still declined to give me it for more than a month. Yeah, that's a very Kafkaesque situation, actually. It's quite, quite disturbing. But just on the point of the validity of feelings, I just wanted to talk a bit about the relationship between sex and gender. My understanding is that the whole basis of gender studies is this idea that gender is completely independent of one's biological sex. Is that something you, you talked about? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely... Um... So can you explain to me how they say it works? Because I think I kind of get it, but not really. Well, it's, it's kind of like your sex is what you are and your gender is who you are. So your sex is whether or not you have a penis or a vagina and your gender is whether or not you are masculine or feminine. And as far as they're concerned, there is no connection between the two. That someone with a vagina can be, you know, incredibly feminine and someone with a, a penis can be incredibly masculine, but there is no correlation. Okay. And so the fact that most men are masculine and the fact that most women are feminine is taught. We, we all learned this. There, there's, there's no reason that that should be the case. We should have as many feminine men as, as we have masculine men and we should have as many masculine women as we have feminine women. Swap the gender roles and nothing would change. Do they ever mention the word hormone? Not very much because bringing in estrogen and testosterone somewhat defeats their argument. Yeah, that's something I've heard that there are gender studies textbooks that, that just don't mention the word hormone at all, which, which I find intriguing coming from a biology background. So, so what do you actually think about this theory? Do you agree with it to some extent? Um, I mean, there's always the question of nature and nurture. How much do we learn and how much is instinct? But every single civilization in every corner of the world in every part of history had the same social structures. It had the same men do, you know, hard work, labor and war and women do the, the more feminine roles of motherhood and nurturing and caring. And also that women seek out strong men and men seek out beautiful women. You know, the, these are things that have been true across all of history. And in the tiny examples that where it's different, the tribe never makes it out of an early civilization stage. So we have found places in uh, like, you know, tribes in the Amazon that are matriarchal, where the women do the bulk of the labor and the men do the bulk of child rearing, but never has a civilization been built on that because it's not, it doesn't work to our strengths. But do the men still go at hunting in those societies? I mean, it, it, it depends on the, each individual tribe, but mainly the women do the, the traditional male roles of, of hunting and building and fighting. Mm. But as I said, these are tiny tribes because, because it's, not, it's not really a practical situation to build a civilization on. I mean, there must be a practical explanation for it. I'm sure anthropologists have come up with a logical explanation. But I know that 
some feminists believe, I don't, I'm not sure how widespread this belief is within gender studies, but some people talk about how humans started out as matriarchal and by default, it was women who were in charge. I think even Jane Harrison embraced this idea at some point in her career. Do you ever hear about that? That's not something that was ever brought up in gender studies. I find that really fascinating because that idea really turns feminism into a religion, you know, with an origin story and then an original sin, I guess, once men somehow managed to yeah, men, take over. It's, it's very much the um, women ruled and lo, there was peace. And then men rose and and destroyed this beautiful situ situation and lo there was torment and and thus has continued for a million years and there's the paradise which we strive to return to yeah through salvation i mean that's just it's just fascinating it just shows how these this this religious thinking is so deeply ingrained in people's psyche that even feminists who mostly reject christianity or maybe religion in general, they still need to have some kind of a religious faith. W would you agree that feminism is often like a religion? Yes, um, it has uh, a lot of parallels to religion. In fact, I would say it's more like a cult because religions are defined by very specific things, like there have to be sacred objects and feminism doesn't have necessarily sacred objects. Um, but- uh, How about menstrual blood? Well, I mean, I was, I, was going to, I was going to say perhaps the sacred object is just like a, a woman's reproductive system because they're, they're really obsessed with that. But um, it doesn't tick all the boxes of what is defined as religion, but it's, it's more like a cult in the sense that it has a very devoted following that will believe something regardless of how much evidence is, is given to the contrary. So, for example... Um, I was uh, attempting to watch um, a, a stand-up show called Stand Up For Her, which was performed by a very unknown uh, comedian called Bridget Christie. She's crap. She's really, really bad. Um, and she's incredibly feminist. And her entire act is basically her just standing on stage bitching about things. You know, it's it's like and talking about her vagina. That's yeah, the punchline usually. It's it's like this is not comedy. The best comedians are self-deprecating. The best comedians make fun of themselves. Whereas her whole act is about how how much cleverer she is than society, how much more virtuous than she is than society, and how unjust it is that society can't keep up with her. Um, and so she talked about Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a, a thesis proposing that men are funnier in general because women find funny men attractive and that women don't practice comedy as much because men find other things attractive. And she thought that was just bollocks and it was so insulting and, and how dare... But she didn't disprove him, obviously. Well, no, she, she just... You would have to be funny to disprove him. <laughs> she, she, um, she, she just complained and said that uh, he was clearly sexist 
um, and that all of his evolutionary arguments were nonsense. And do you know what? If men are so funny, why wasn't his essay funny? <laughs> That's true. That's an absolute true quote. And um, the Do you like, think women can be funny? I do think women can be funny. I think individuals can be funny. I just think that in general, in terms of trends, men are more likely to make jokes and are more likely to be funny because women do find it attractive. Um, I mean, men go to extreme lengths to impress women, right? Yeah. And that's just, that's just one of them. They're going to they're gonna fight each other. They're literally going to do well, anything I, that women find attractive. I, as I've always said, if tomorrow men decided that funny women were the sexiest thing in the world, women would be hilarious. It's just that they don't naturally go towards it because it's not something that benefits them as much as it benefits men. And it's not to say that women can't be funny. And it's not to say that every funny woman is trying to impress a man or every funny man is trying to impress a woman. But we do have biological instincts. We do, we, we essentially do things that get us more positive social uh, acceptance. So funny men get a better acceptance in society than unfunny men. Whereas funny women versus unfunny women doesn't really make much difference. So why would you naturally put effort into learning something that doesn't overly benefit you? But anyway, so Bridget Christie said that he was clearly a sexist for proposing that this was an evolutionary thing. And I thought to myself, these are the same people that, that will mock and ridicule uh, a, a religious person who believes that the world was made in six days or whatever. But as soon as, because, you know, because they'll be like, oh, science, Ooh. but as soon as someone comes along with evidence for something they disagree with, so evidence as to why uh, men are funnier or evidence as to why women will always prioritize being mothers over anything else, they will immediately say, this is bollocks because I don't agree with it. It doesn't fit my worldview and therefore it's wrong. And, and that drives me nuts because it's so hypocritical. When people cry misogyny, it's kind of like people crying blasphemy, isn't it? Yes. I mean, there, there, are, there are so many parallels between the, the way that a really pious religious person acts and the way that a really snobby feminist acts. You know, which, which is like, they look down on people, they're condescending, they have this whole, I am chosen, I am virtuous, I am forgiven, and you walk in sin, you are evil, you know, like, they... they and there's nothing you can do to no, you, redeem yourself. Not unless you kneel down to the, the, the holy feminism and beg it for forgiveness. Um, so I, I think it's simply, it's, it's a, a type of personality in terms of a lot of people thought once we kind of became a more secular society, that this type of pious arrogance would go because it was tied to religion. Whereas I think it's just a personality type. That, that people love to feel on a high horse. They love to look down on others. They love to judge other people and feel virtuous about themselves. And I think that regardless of what it is, whether, whether you're conservative or liberal or feminist or communist or whatever, that everybody has to deal with that level of ego where you see everybody else is wrong and you are the chosen one. That's a very good point. I wanted to talk to you about 
the history of feminism. And what I'd like to ask you in particular is, do you think feminism was ever justified? It's a, it's a difficult question. I, I think that societal change was needed. I don't disagree with that for a second, but I don't necessarily think feminism was the right ideology to do it. I think that even without feminism, because feminism often takes the credit for getting women the vote and it, it, it will then use it against women and, and say, how dare you disagree with us? You wouldn't even have the right to speak your mind if it wasn't for us. Um, which for me is exactly the same argument as a Republican saying to a black person, how dare you disagree with us? You'd still be a slave if it wasn't for us. You know, what is the point of fighting for someone's right to have an opinion if you then bully them for having the wrong opinion? I think they're pro-choice, only insofar as the woman makes the right choice. Yeah, well, no uterus, no opinion, but then a woman comes along who is pro-life and, and she gets told, oh, you just have internalised misogyny, so therefore your opinion is invalid as well. And in terms of a man who's, who's pro-choice, his opinion is valid. Like, my, my friend who's very pro-life drives her nuts when a, a, a feminist, a male feminist, will lecture her about what she should and shouldn't do with her body. Um, you know, because it's like, because they, they have this whole, um, like your, your body is so important in your choice and your choice and your choice, but then a, a male feminist and she, she will say, well, I, I, I think that that's a human life in there and I don't think that we have the right to murder this human life. And they'll be like, well, you're a stupid bitch who doesn't understand anything about your, your own body. Um, so so she, she drives her nuts. I was once told by a male feminist that I glamorize my own oppression by modeling. Yeah. Which was just, I mean, how patronizing and condescending is that for well, a guy to say something like that? This is the thing that um, feminists say that they want to liberate women to, to feel free to use their sexuality, but only if they use their sexuality in favor of feminism. So, for example, beauty pageants, no. Modeling, no. Pornography, no. Prostitutes, no. But if you want to go on a slut walk and talk about how great feminism is, that's totally fine. So, use your body, use your sexuality, but in service of feminism. Using it in service of anything else, particularly to make men happy, no. So, it's not about choice, it's just about propagating the right idea. Yeah. So coming back to the history of feminism, I've been researching the early beginnings of feminism recently, and I've changed my mind about a lot of things, especially about Seneca Falls. Yeah. I used to believe that, you know, that must have been justified because I think this idea is just so pervasive in society that feminism in general can only be a force for good and to go against that you just get exiled from public life, basically. So it takes a lot of courage to, to even say that feminism has gone too far. So very few people are brave enough to say that it was corrupt from the very start. Yes. But would, um, would you say that even the intentions behind Seneca Falls weren't really genuine? Well, if you, if you have a look at the Seneca Falls documents, they basically took Marxist communist rhetoric and changed it from the bourgeoisie to he. So it was rather than the bourgeoisie has taken your rights, 
it was he has taken your rights and the bourgeoisie has held you down he has held you down it was all about men attacking women um and the there were men invited to the meeting but they weren't allowed to speak and at the end they had to sign you know this this document to say they agreed with it um right from the start there was very much this idea that society was binary and that men had everything and women had nothing and the women at seneca falls were middle class white women you know they they didn't want black people involved they didn't want poor women involved they they were purely interested for, in it for themselves and and when you look at the most famous early act of of feminism which is the suffrage movement they managed to get the vote without the reciprocal responsibility to go to war and never did they fight for that responsibility or for men to not have that responsibility so that to me immediately says this is where we're standing that yes women deserve the vote and yes women deserve to work and they deserve x y and z but feminism is only interested in female supremacy not female equality if you can be given the the right to vote in wars that you have no obligation to fight that is a huge power that you have over the the your fellow man and and i remember i i brought this up to some third years in a in a school that i was helping teach in and i said to them do you think women should have been given the right to vote without this reciprocal responsibility or should they have had to go to war or be conscripted if they got the vote and a, a a girl answered and said well no because they could use their vote to vote against male conscription and i said to her that male conscription went on for another 40 years and the you know the second world war happened 20 years later and men were conscripted for that as well so clearly the the suffragettes were not particularly interested in eradicating this it's it's so weird to me that when we talk about say the first world war feminists will bring up that oh you know we weren't conscripted because men forced us not to go like we would have loved to have fought but but you kept us out it's your fault and it's like point me to the suffragette movement that campaigned for for women to be conscripted because you were you you firebombed buildings and and attacked politicians to get the vote but i don't remember anybody doing anything like that to be conscripted nobody said you know i'm going to burn down westminster cathedral because i want to die in the trenches um it it, it really bothers me that at the time that the suffragettes were campaigning for the vote half of the men dying in the trenches couldn't vote either we look back in it because we're taught to look back in it as a situation where men had power and women didn't but it's not and it never has been it's only been the rich had power and everyone else didn't yeah the way i think about it is a wealthy woman at any point in history was always more privileged than a poorer man or even within each social class the woman had always had it a bit easier than the man we don't think about it like that these days anymore because war is a very abstract concept to us that's how privileged we are but for most of human history there were peace times but war 
was more the norm than peace for much of human history. And having to go to war as a man is, is a pretty big deal when you're not flying drones, but you're actually expected to physically fight. Of course. Other and men. I, like we, we know um, in terms of this really patriarchal evil society where men had everything, that you've got men in the trenches, you know, with lice and with rats dying of disease. They've got trench foot, you know, they've got wounds, they have no medicine. And they're writing letters home to their wives, telling them how much they love them and how much they miss them and how much they miss the children. But we still pretend to ourselves that these men didn't care a, a single jot for their, their families and for women. I mean, men in the trenches, you know, what you might consider the, you know, the manliest of men, because they were in a combat zone, many of them died crying for their mother. You know, it's such a, a natural instinct for, for all of us to, when we are in danger and when we are suffering, to really want to have our mother with us. You know, and, and, and how could a society that embraces something as, as significant as the bond between a mother and child ever believe that people hated women? I think women have always been very good at kind of pulling the strings from the background anyway. And the men who voted at the time were definitely taking their families' interest into account. I mean, just how, how bitter and cynical do you have to be to, to believe that they were only caring about their own interests? I mean, it's, it's such nonsense. They obviously were thinking about what would be best for the women they loved as yep. well as for themselves for, for their whole family when when you go look back at like a propaganda voting propaganda that existed at the time you would get posters like you know women tell your husband to vote for blah 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 i mean it was perceived that it was one vote per household and that the man cast the vote but he cast it based on what the family wanted and the you know, because men were given the responsibility of the family, they had to look after the family. It was their job to make sure that the taxes were paid and that the house was was up to, to standard, you know, it wasn't crumbling. Um, they had to work to make sure that the family could be fed. Men were given all of these responsibilities and the, the, the vote was seen as a similar responsibility. And it seems really alien to us, but if you were to go back in time a hundred years ago and say, well, I think that his wife should be able to vote. A lot of people said, what would be the point? Because she's just going to vote exactly what he's going to vote, surely. I mean, if they're a married couple and they love each other, presumably they agree with each other. You know, like, like for us now, we're like, oh no, it's dead common that two people who are in a relationship will have completely different politics. But for them, they would have been like, why Why would a husband and wife disagree? All you're doing is doubling the amount of ballots that have to be counted by giving a woman a vote. Yeah, and the family was the basic unit of society back then. Absolutely. The family as a unit mattered more than the individual. It's actually quite a recent idea, if you look at it from a historical context, that we're placing such an emphasis on the individual. And I think it's a good thing, by the way. I agree with that, but... It's always a very bad idea to judge the past through the lens of the present. I've got into so many debates with people on Twitter because they just don't get it. They just, 
really don't get it why it's such a bad idea. And what I always say is that, well, if we want the future, future generations to perceive us with understanding, then we should maybe do the same when we're looking at the past, because it's quite unlikely that we're doing everything perfectly right. Well, at we the moment, right? I mean, we're probably doing some very, very crazy shit that future generations will be really laughing at us for. Yeah, um, it's it's a huge irony because these these generations did not grow up with anywhere near the privileges we have. We have access to education. We have access to clean water and food. We live in a peacetime. You know, we, we have so many resources at our disposal and we can educate ourselves, and we can discuss and we can be political and we can be diplomatic and we can be democratic. And the reason that we're able to do all that is because they fought and died for us. So we look back on the people that, had, that didn't have these privileges, but, but fought and died so that we could have them and then we look back on them and judge them as arseholes. You know, it's like, it's basically like, you know, um, blaming somebody for not being able to speak your language. And you're like, well, I can speak English. Why can't you speak English? Did you not learn English? I learned English. You know, and it's just like, but they, they grew up in a completely different place with a completely different set of priorities. So to judge them for not having your priorities and your sense of, of uh, what's important or what's right and wrong is, is misunderstanding entirely the culture and context that they've come from. I mean, my, my best friend, who, as I said, is very pro-life, sometimes she says to me that she hopes one day people of the future will look back on us and say, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they would kill children in the womb. That's obscene. You know, and, and we will have to justify ourselves to them. We will have to say, oh, but we thought we were doing the right thing. And, you know, we were, we were, we were doing it because we, we wanted to make sure that women who were raped or women who uh, were, were in medical danger, that they were protected. And the, the people of the, the future will say, well, look at the statistics. Less than 2% of the women getting abortions had any kind of problem like that. 98% of them just wanted rid of a, a child that they got through consensual sex. And, and we will be like, oh, well, um, we thought it was okay. Um, you know, it's, it's wrong to judge people who didn't have the, the, the same resources and information that we have because we are we are lucky to have what we do and it's because of their sacrifices that we do. Yeah, it's kind of a, a very interesting thought experiment to try to figure out what things we're doing today that we're kind of considering normal that the future will completely condemn. And I think there was a very good example. Another would be they're giving children puberty blockers and hormones at such a young age and they're telling little boys who might want to try on their mom's high heels or whatever, you know, they're encouraging them to transition and asking them whether they might feel like they're in the wrong body at an age where they don't even really have a conception of gender. I mean, it's, it, not only is it wrong and dangerous for children to be making such significant choices so early, but it also goes against feminist teaching feminist doctrine 
which is that gender is a social construct. So if a little boy is acting like a little girl, why does that make him a little girl? He should still be a little boy, according to them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So using their logic. So if you're, if you're born in a certain body, you get to express yourself any way you like. But it doesn't matter anyway, because the gender roles were socially constructed and forced upon us. So a man who feels like she's in the wrong body and she's really a woman, generally they embrace the gender stereotype. Would you not, would you not agree with that? I would say for the, the, the most devoted transgender female, but because of what feminism has done to just totally eradicate the, the meanings of, of sex and gender, that there are people who are, as far as they're concerned, trans women who may just look exactly like a man. And, you know, like, I mean, as, as far as feminist teaching is concerned, mm-hmm. you can wake up any day of the week and say, I'm a woman now. You know, so, yeah, people like Blair White, for example, clearly embrace all of the, the, the femininity. You know, and that's, that's wonderful because it's, it's very easy to understand exactly what Blair White is, is saying with her, her choices. But in terms of that you can just identify as a woman anytime you want, and then you can flip back and forth, et cetera, et cetera. That, it doesn't make sense. It's, it, it's incredibly confusing. And, and to be honest, it's also dangerous because so many decisions are made based on sex and gender. Some of them like legal, as in which bathroom do you use? And some of them social. And so if we start throwing sex and gender out the window, which has been a driving force for us for millions of years, then we, we will not know which direction to go in. It's like taking out a fundamental piece of your car and tossing it away and expecting the car to run better than it did before. Yeah, Jordan Peterson talks about this quite often, that when you have a very complex system and you want to make a fundamental change to that system, you're very unlikely to make it any better. We have that complex system because it worked and it has worked. It's not perfect, but it has at least been functional for a long time. If you want to introduce any change to that, you're more likely to, to mess it up than to make it better. I remember my gender studies teacher giving the example of Georgian men. You know, the aristocrats in Georgian times, you see them with their powdered white faces and their white wigs and stuff. And she was like, oh, clearly that's very feminine. So this proves that society has always embraced, you know, men who are feminine and women who are masculine and, and, and the, the masculinity and femininity are just concepts, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, bullshit. That was only aristocratic men. It was, it was because makeup was expensive. So wearing it showed that you were rich. The average poor person of that society still conformed to the gender rules. So these, these elite Georgian aristocrats wearing some makeup at a very specific point in history does not fucking take down the, the millennia of gender roles that built every other civilization. It's interesting, though, because there are examples when we look back at history where there was a bit more of an element of gender fluidity, but that tends to be towards the late stage of the civilization. And Camille Paria actually points this out on several occasions, that when an empire 
is about to fall once people have kind of lost faith in their own values and they kind of morph into this nihilistic, formless, shapeless mess. That, that's when people start really experimenting with, with gender and kind of men becoming more and more feminine. When looking at ancient Greek and Roman art, you can see that during the peak of the civilization, artists depicted men as soldiers, like really masculine, strong soldiers. And then towards the end, they became a lot more feminine. And then the beautiful boy, you know, the, the depictions of, of the, the, the gorgeous boy kind of dominated. And I just find this incredibly fascinating because that's pretty much what we're seeing. I mean, we're, we're seeing an element of androgyny, which was quite common in the late stages of Greece and Rome. And also men being encouraged to be more feminine too. So there's nothing new under the sun. I, I believe civilizations just work in cycles. Yeah, I, um, I, I agree and I am worried about the West because I, I do think that we're on a tipping point and that we are in danger of losing our values because we don't protect them. We don't protect democracy. We don't protect free speech. If anything, we, we tear them down. We have a tendency to idolize other cultures and, and pretend that other cultures are so perfect and that they did it right and it's the West that's evil and it's white people that are evil and everybody else is, is glorious and virtuous. Um, and a civilization that is not willing to fight for its, its own survival will die. Um, there was a, a quote that Elizabeth Hobson, one of my co-hosts from MR Radio, told me, and, and she got it from a, a, a book, but I can't remember which one, but she said that in the fall of the Roman Empire, they were arguing about the garb of angels while the barbarians were at the gates. You know, and that, that sort of sums up that we do, we get, because our lives are so privileged and so easy, we get lost in arguments, philosophical arguments that are totally meaningless. And, and other civilizations that are not as, as wealthy and, and don't have the same access to resources, they are far more pragmatic. They don't have the time to mess around with, oh, what if this and what if that? Are you using the, the right pronoun? Blah, blah, blah. They, like, they have to be just, they have to do what's functional, exactly as you said. They have to do what works. And they tend to steamroll a civilization that does not care about its own survival. Um, so, you know, I, I would be very sad, but, but not surprised if the West collapsed and was taken over by a, a, a culture that was far more um, confident about its, its, its gender roles and about its, it, what, you know, what, it believes everybody should have to do its expectations of the average person. And I think that the culture would be not as progressive, not as fair, not as kind, not as sympathetic and compassionate as the West is, because the West actually is all these things, despite our claims. Um, and I think that it's quite possible we would end up with a, a, another kind of pseudo dark age where the progress in science and technology that the West has made would fall apart because the, the cultures that replaced them would not 
prioritize them the way we have and and we would revert back to a more a more simplistic standard of living yeah i agree with that and i think it's inevitable i have a very pessimistic although i would say it's more realistic view we're definitely living in the final stage of the civilization i think and i guess the best we can do is make the most of it and i i personally like to celebrate the western canon as much as possible and i use references to european literature and philosophy in my work and i embrace european liberal thought wholeheartedly because i do believe it's the best system of thought we have ever come up with but unfortunately because it's so tolerant it's it's almost an inevitable culmination that it will lose faith in itself so i think there's this weird contradiction in it so you reach the conclusion that all cultures are equal you kind of lose faith in your own culture and at that point there's nothing to fight for and i've i've always argued that human beings are equal you know races are equal genders are equal sexualities are equal but cultures are not equal because a culture is just a set of ideas a set of ideas about how you should behave who you should talk to what you should do with your life even basic things about what foods you should eat these are just ideas they they have nothing to do with race they have nothing to do with gender and some of them are better than others you know a, a culture that embraces slavery is not as ethical as one that doesn't um and and i i believe a real danger that people get themselves into is this idea of relativism where nothing is true and everything is is as valid as the next thing so so if you believe you know if you believe that there is no such thing as truth and there is no objective reality then what do you do with yourself how do you move towards something you just kind of stagnate and avoid um it's it's a really dangerous idea i i don't believe it in the slightest um my friend again the same one uh refers to postmodernism as postmoralism um because as far as she's concerned when once you reach that aspect of society where you give up on the idea that there is right and wrong then we will inevitably turn upside down and start justifying the craziest things so without religion what would you say is an absolute measure of what's right and wrong um i think that the fact that every society has uh, accepted certain things as wrong across the board so for example murder has always been outlawed by every major civilization rape has always been outlawed by every major civilization um i i i believe that there are things that we intrinsically know are wrong some people may argue that we get that from god other people may argue that it's just our humanity as soon as we start saying well is murder wrong you know because well what if we just come up with this idea and and we could equally just disagree that the murder's wrong i think i think we end up in a really dangerous situation basically simple kind of logical 
statements, like even, you know, without being Christian, you could say, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Something like that. Those, those are kind of good, positive rules to live by. Um, you don't have to embrace God to, to, to practice that. My, my lecturer from college used to say that his goal in life was to, to leave everyone he met better off than when he found them. You know, so, so I think that whether you say it's God or whether you say that it's just our biology and our psychology, we like helping each other. We, we actually get a positive endorphin rush from making each other happy. There are certain things that we do because they're easy, you know, like as in, you know, we, we might binge on junk food or we might take drugs or we might gamble or we might be alcoholics. But these things we know psychologically do not make us happy. We know that the things that do make us psychologically happy are things like friendship and love and intimacy. So even if you boil it down to like, it's nothing to do with ethics, it's nothing to do with morals, it's nothing to do with God, it's still good for our human psychology to look after one another. I think it's quite interesting that when the idea of an inherent morality breaks down in a society, that's where you also see all this confusion around gender. And that's probably because once you reject the idea that anything can be inherent, that morality can be intrinsic, then with that comes the eventuality that you're going to reject all other aspects of your being and personality as being intrinsic, and that includes gender. So we end up with a blank slate, I guess. But I'm not sure if it's completely embraced by many social scientists, but, but they like to claim that we are born as blank slates and society, our culture makes us who we are. Yes. With regards to every single aspect of, of our personality. Yes. Right? Yes. And to believe that, you would have to believe that it's a massive coincidence that every culture in the world all did the exact same thing. Just one of them by sheer, you know, virtue of the randomness of the universe, you know, the balance of probability, just one of them would have been the other way around. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. But just thinking about gender, I'm just wondering that if we accept that there's some element of male and female that's intrinsic in us and masculinity and femininity kind of are a collection of traits that stem from our biology hormones to some extent then is it right for a society to strive to change those roles i mean my opinion again would be treat others as you'd want to be treated yourself so I think that there will always be outliers. There will always be people who, uh, men who are quite feminine and women who are quite masculine. I'm, I'm a, quite a feminine guy myself, but I'm also quite masculine, you know, in, in other ways. And I don't think that people have the right to judge me on either side of that personality. My best friend, again, she, she's quite masculine in some regards, but she's also very traditional. She, she really loves the idea of meeting a man and becoming a stay-at-home mother and, and him looking after her. But as I said, in, in, some, in some aspects of our friendship, she really 
takes the kind of leading role that you would expect a, a man to take. And in other areas, I very much chaperone her. So I think there will always be outliers and that should never be discouraged. That should always be embraced. But the men will always, always, no matter what you do, trend towards masculinity and women will always trend towards femininity. And you can't escape that. It's like magnets. You know, they will meet in the middle at times, but the vast majority of them will be at either side. And the, we should be okay with that. We should embrace the few number of people who want to be in the middle and want to be different. But we should also accept that there's nothing wrong with the fact that men are men and women are women. And that's actually my one of my main criticisms of feminism. I mean, we touched on this before, that they're pro-choice as long as women make the right choice. And they kind of encourage the majority of women to aspire to the kind of life that on, only a minority of even men want, you know, when it comes to being CEOs of companies. And it ties in with another major issue, which is that feminism only seems to acknowledge the existence of masculine power when they talk about power they always mean it in a distinctly masculine sense you know aggression assertiveness competitiveness striving to reach the top break ceilings they basically encourage women to display and express traditionally masculine traits but at the same time they say masculinity in men is toxic Yes. I mean, it, they're basically turning the whole thing upside down and they're trying to make men more feminine. But I think most people need that sort of, we need that sort of duality in our lives. And, and as you say, you pointed out quite right that no person is 100% masculine or feminine. We are, human beings are very complex creatures and there's more to us. It's, it's not all black and white, but we need that, as you say, magnetism or, or, the yin and yang sort of duality of chaos and order and finding balance and completing each other. And what makes me really uncomfortable about contemporary feminism is that they're pushing women and men to compete with each other. I mean, they're pushing women to strive to compete with men. And I've always believed instinctively that there's a form of power that's just uniquely feminine and feminism seems to reject that idea altogether. And I just find it quite disturbing. The most obvious example would be sexual power, but I think there's a lot more to feminine power than that. For example, a nurturing, caring woman who has great verbal skills and who's very good at communicating with people and, and empathizing and sympathizing with them. I mean, I think that sort of person can be really powerful in her own way if she chooses the right career, for example. She doesn't have to be a stay-at-home mom, but she can work with people. She can work in a role that requires her to help people, like as a counselor or even as a doctor. So I just think we're making a huge mistake by encouraging women to only aspire to masculine goals. Would you, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um... It's something that Elizabeth Hobson talked about in our first episode of MR Radio, um, where she said that 
feminism idolizes male power, like, as you said, strength and, and wealth and stuff. And it, it, it completely diminishes and dismisses female power. Um, and I, I think that a lot of what they're doing is that feminism resents men, but it's also very envious of men. And that it tells women that they should be more like men because it envies what men have achieved and it dismisses what women have achieved. And, and so it fixates enormously on, you know, get a lot of money, have a lot of wealth and influence, have status, rather than accepting that power comes in many different forms. Not just the visible ones of people at the top, but also in, in social aspects where women have a lot of power. And I think you said that they convince women to pursue masculine ideals, but they sort of diminish masculinity at the same time. And actually, we talked about this on the most recent uh, episode of MR Radio, where I said that I think what they're doing is because they are envious of men, and they shouldn't be. They, you know, they, they obsess about male power and are not in any way respectful of female power. Why is this? I mean, what is at the root of this? Yeah, I, think it's, I think it's envy. I think it's, I think it's taking the grass is always greener logic to like the most ridiculous extreme. And so they tell women to be more manly, but they know that women will never be better men than men are. So they then have to tell men to be less manly, to sort of even the playing field a bit and give women a better chance to fight men on those very specific battlefields. It's, it's something that I find, it's a paradox. If I say women have power in society, Feminists will say, no, they don't. They never have. Women have always been ignored. Look, look how, how few female leaders they are, how few female politicians, how, how few female CEOs. But then if you say, look at all the achievements of men, look at democracy, look at the uh, inventions that we've created, you know, things like the, you know, the computer and the internet and so on, they will say, oh, yeah, and do you think they did that without the help of their women? Do you think the women, like their mothers and their wives and their sisters, played no part in that? Women had just as much to contribute as men did. And it's like, fair enough. Which means they had power. Because a, a wife cannot contribute and a mother cannot contribute to, to a man's life unless they have power to offer that. So, yeah, it's, it's bamboozling that, again, this thing of oh, women were, were stuck in the home looking after the children while men were out doing all the jobs. And it's like, well, if they really hated it, why didn't they raise the, the children to form a different society? If you have, you have single express control over youth, then you have a huge amount of power of what the next generation looks like. If women were so damn unhappy, why didn't they teach their sons to, to do whatever women want them to do. Because in my opinion, they did. And in my opinion, that is what our society was. But as far as they're concerned, women had single control over men from the day they're born till the day they go off and do work. And yet, you know, somehow the men grew up to hate women. Well, whose bloody fault is that? Who taught them those ideas? It's, it's kind of like, you know... I don't know, an owner having a dog from when it's a puppy and this dog grows up to be the most vicious thing in the world. 
And then the owner's like, oh, what happened? You know, like, it has nothing to do with me. Do you think if we're to use the grass is greener on the other side argument, do you think there's something about man's physical strength that women envy? Is, is that at the root of this psychologically? Because as much as I, I agree with your argument, I still don't think it explains the whole dynamic that, that well, because why don't men think women are better off? Why, why is it only women envying men? So it just leads me to think that, that it must be something specific men possess and physical strength is the only thing I can, can think of. Well, I, I disagree. I would say that, that men do feel that that women are better off um in a lot of ways well, these days but do you think historically they have i think they've been, they've been disallowed from doing that like mm -hmm. for example um karen strong once talked about how uh if a man is you know perceived as as particularly feminine he's bullied you know it's it's like oh you throw like a girl or whatever or man up and she said that this was not about girls are rubbish you know because girls aren't bullied for being girls mm -hmm. but boys are bullied for being girls and in, in her opinion what that was was a paranoia that this boy would start expecting the kind of privileges and treatment that women get you know so if, if like he would expect to be protected and he would expect to be provided for and no we can't have that we need the boys to understand that they have very specific roles and that they need to understand that they are disposable. They need to understand that they will go down mines for 12 hours. They will go into factories and they'll get their fingers chopped off by industrial machines. If you let the boys act like girls, the boys might start believing they deserve the rights that the girls have. It's just incredible how people, even sane, rational people that I know who are not really, wouldn't really say they're feminists, even they would tell you that they think women have had fewer choices in their lives in general. There's the last argument they kind of still have in favor of feminism, that women still need it to be liberated and be offered the opportunity to choose. But as you, as you correctly point out, what choices did men have? As you say, a young boy is bullied for acting like a girl, whereas a girl is free to express herself. I mean, girls are not going to bully another girl for, for being a bit more masculine. They might think she's a bit weird and they, you know, girls, little girls can be very cruel to each other, talk about her behind her back, but, but they're still going to kind of interact with her. They're not going to completely shun her. There, there's a song, a song by Madonna where the chorus is, do you know what it feels like to be a girl in this world? And she just repeats that over and over again. And, and I, I, I'm sort of thinking, I assume people have some idea, Madonna, but um, the, the lyrics have this question where, where she says that, um, that she can cut her hair short and she can wear jeans and a t-shirt because it's okay to be a boy, but you would never wear your dress because it's not okay to be a woman. And I was like, whoa, 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 Madonna, are you complaining that you have the choice to wear whatever you want and that I don't, and that somehow that makes you oppressed? <laughs> I actually used to like Madonna. 
she used to be the epitome of kind of feminine power because she really did embrace her sexuality in the early days, in the 80s and even the first half of the 90s. But then she's turned into, I don't know what happened to her, like, like most of these Hollywood stars just go completely insane. I think they, um, they receive a huge amount of love and admiration when they're younger because people do value youth and beauty. Um, particularly in women and I think maybe as they get older and their career is not as successful they start resenting everything about society and they say that clearly this is men's fault that they are not as successful you know and, and again it comes down to this thing of well who is embracing your your uh, sexuality and your youth and your beauty is it men or is it women because I know men are but then again, if you look at all the magazines of, of models and you look at all the magazines talking about celebrities and their bodies and, and all these shows that talk about what to wear and how to look and stuff, who's watching this? Who's reading this? It's not men. The, the industry that makes women so rich and so wealthy for their beauty is, is mainly funded by women. Yeah, and there are so many psychological studies showing that women feel good when they look at images of beautiful women. Yeah. I don't think it's obvious why, why that is. They might be, it might be a fantasy. They might be putting themselves in that woman's position. Look at male athletes. I mean, who makes male athletes wealthy? It's men, you know, so, so sports like basketball and baseball and football, mm -hmm. they are pri primarily the, the, the fan base is male. And that's the sort of male equivalent because these men also, their careers take a downturn after they turn 30, 35, because they're no longer as fit and strong and fast as they used to be. So there's quite a lot of parallels there, that men hold them up as gods when they are young and they are strong. But then when they reach a certain age, they take a downturn and there's no returning from that. But you never hear male athletes, retired no. male athletes, complain about no, how no. tough the world is on men. A male athlete would never come out and say, oh, oh, how come when I could score 20 goals in a match, everybody loved me? But now that I'm old and decrepit, I don't get anywhere near as much money. This is clearly the patriarchy. <laughs> you know, we, like, we, we accept it because we understand it. We know that it's natural. We know that we like strong and, and young men because of what they can do. And we know that when they get older, they can't do those things that fascinated us. And so we accept that we're not going to be as interested. And it's just seen as a natural thing. And the men who go into these roles know that it's coming and they see it as a natural thing as well. But when it comes to female beauty, where we do understand, we all know for a fact that youth has a lot to do with beauty. But when these women get older and they're not considered as glamorous as they once were, we say that that's a clear problem with the society, you know? And it's, it, you're not going to change that any more than you're going to make old age pension or football interesting. You're absolutely right. One of my favorite cringeworthy feminist arguments is Obviously, they, they love arguing that women are being objectified and the depiction of the female body is a form of objectification. And there are the guerrilla girls who were this activist group a decade or two ago who, who were very big on pointing out the gender imbalance in, in the arts. 
and one of their posters said something like in the Metropolitan Museum in, in New York, over 90% of the artists are male, over 90% of the nudes are female, but fewer than 10% of the artists are female. Yeah. Which is clearly evidence of oppression and, and patriarchy. And I think there's just no better way of missing the point there. There's just something about feminine beauty that as, as a straight woman, I just find mesmerizing. I could look, I could just get lost in an art gallery and look at these images of gorgeous women for hours. And I mean, I can look at a nice statue, like a Greek statue of a guy, but male nudes just don't have the same commercial value as female nudes. Both men and women prefer having, if they were to have a nude image on their wall, they would prefer a woman. I think that female bodies are more interesting because of you know their curves and also that a male nude does not stimulate a woman because his his nudity without context is not interesting so he has no power right a naked man is not powerful the way a naked woman can be powerful so i've i've talked about this before uh with many people about how feminists you know protest uh, female beauty pageants and they say why are there no male beauty pageants and the answer is because nobody would go. Like, you, if you want to give them money, they will put them on, but nobody would go. Female beauty pageants are frequented by males and females. And I believe that the equivalent of that would be something like a boxing match, where men are wearing little clothing. You know, they tend to be in shorts and boxing gloves, and that's about it. But what's really interesting is what they're doing with their body. It's not that, like, if, if two boxers stood side by side just on display, everybody would leave. Fuck that. But two boxers who display what their, their bodies are capable of, the power and ferocity of what their bodies can achieve, that is interesting for everybody. Because it's, as you said, like, uh, you know, when a woman looks at an, a picture of a beautiful, glamorous woman, she's, she's, she's happy. You know, and, and what is that? Is it because she's you know, transposing herself into that role? Is it, is it vicarious? And I think exactly the same is true for, like, James Bond. James Bond is not, is, is not just a female fantasy, it's a male fantasy as well. Because at that classic line, women want him, men want to be him. You know, so we all watch James Bond and women are going, oh my God, he's so handsome and he's so rugged and oh, I love him so much. And men are going, yeah, that's me, that is, I could do that. Um, we all we all love a bit of escapism so men enjoy seeing strong powerful men in sports and in media and computer games and women love seeing beautiful women in magazines and films and in merchandise that's a very interesting point about james bond because there's the exact same thing they said about marilyn monroe that all the men wanted her and all the women wanted to be her um I mean, I might be a bit biased because I'm just obsessed with Marilyn Monroe. I think she was the single most beautiful woman ever alive. And I know a lot of people would disagree with that, but I yeah, think she's just tight. perfect. Yeah, and even scientists have shown that her waist to hip ratio was just the ideal golden ratio. I, I was really surprised to find that in the Hollywood Walk of Fame, where you can go to the Chinese theater and 
there's all these like you know cement slabs that the yes. celebrities have, have imprinted and Marilyn Monroe is one of them and it's her like footprint or it's, it's her shoe um and her hands yeah and it's tiny it's absolutely minuscule it's teeny tiny shoe you know so that that's really interesting but yeah it's exactly that we are drawn to certain things about women's beauty because they they remind us of of certain things or they imply certain things to us so like for example women use like mascara and eyeliner and eyelashes to make their eyes look bigger because that is neotness it makes us think of innocent animals or babies and it makes us want to protect women. You know, they, they have the lips, they make sure they, they make them look round and red and full because there's a, a subtle implication of a vagina there. Another explanation I've heard is that it resembles ripe fruit. All right. Which is something that we're subconsciously drawn to. Maybe. Um, necklaces are there to, to draw your attention towards the bust. And breasts are there in, in the sense that other mammals do not have permanent mammary globs. Breasts are there simply because we walk upright. Most animals, they, they, on their eye level is the genitals of the female. Whereas because of the way we walk upright, that's not the case. So women actually evolved breasts to attract men the way that buttocks would attract um, an animal who was on all fours. And yeah, the, the weight, waist to hip ratio, you know, it, like a thin woman is attractive because a thin woman is clear evidence that she's not pregnant yet. And the, the hip ratio means that she has strong hips to bear children, you know, and, and like basically just everything that we find beautiful can be traced back to some kind of semblance that this person would make for a good partner. When it comes to women, it's about their fertility, but men are always fertile. Like as in a woman's fertility is bound with her youth, one day she won't be fertile. Whereas men are fertile for their entire lives, which is why women's youth is seen as so precious but men's youth is not because an older man may have accumulated more resources than a young man. And also he will still be just as fertile. So women chasing older men makes sense to them, but men chasing older women makes less sense to them because it, you can't start a family with an older woman, but you can start a family with an older man. Yeah. And another thing feminists get wrong is that they claim that society places so much pressure on women to look young and feminine and all that and then men have no such pressure that's simply because as you say a man's youth is not the equivalent of a female's youth as her sex appeal the mere equivalent of a woman's youthful sex appeal is his ability to provide his power his status so that's just something that really pisses me off that feminists choose to completely ignore that, that there is a lot of pressure on men too, just in a different sense. Of course, yeah, I mean, the women are hypergamous by nature, so they want a, a man who is of equal or higher status than them. And like, we get all this feminist propaganda about why are men so, you know, the, the majority of the CEOs and stuff, 
But then when women started out earning men in this generation, we have like the New York Times saying men are not earning enough to interest women. You know, like this is damaging women's marital prospects. That's a real headline. And uh, what what annoys me is is um, all these men who are CEOs, chances are 99% of them have wives and have families who they are giving money to because we know that women spend more domestic income than men do. Women spend up to 60 to 80% of domestic income. So even though a man is in the boardroom working himself you know, uh, to, to the bone day after day after day to earn all this money, I guarantee you that it's the wife spending it. Yeah, women make, even if they don't directly spend it, they make the purchasing decisions up to 80% of the time. And here's the thing, like as in, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's, it's right or justified or patriarchal or blah, 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 a lot of women will, will prioritize their beauty because they can get a wealthy man. So you could work your way up, you know, the, the incredibly vicious corporate ladder for decades to get to the top, or you could be young, 21, beautiful, and marry a guy that has all that. You know, like that, that's like a cheat code straight to the end level. You know, and, and plenty of women are perfectly happy to, to, to go down that route if, if it comes down to the two of them. I mean, the, the richest man in the world is Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon. And the third richest woman in the world is Jeff Bezos' ex-wife. She's the richest woman. That's what I read the other day. I think she's become the richest woman. Maybe. This is what I mean about men may be in these positions, presidents and politicians and CEOs, but do they, do they hog all the resources to themselves? Do they never share it with their wives and with their families? As many women are getting the benefits of these positions as, me, as the men are. Uh, so I, it's, it's like a, it's a complete blankness on that obvious factor. I mean, like, for example, Bill Clinton used to say that the American people got two presidents for the price of one because of how much influence Hillary Clinton had in the White House. And Barack Obama joked that when he was asked by Stephen Colbert why he hasn't applied for a, a superior position in, in the eight years he's been in office, he said, well, there wasn't many places for me to go. I only have one boss and that's my wife. You know, so... You would never get, you can imagine uh, Hillary Clinton saying that, oh yeah, Bill makes half the decisions. Bullshit. You know, so men are quite often sharing power and money and resources with their wives and with their family, but the women don't feel that same obligation to do, to do it reciprocally. Yeah, and there's definitely another sign of hypocrisy there because if a man chooses to keep everything to himself, he's shamed for yeah. being selfish and being a deadbeat and all of that. Whereas women are encouraged to be independent and work for themselves and all of that. I, I remember a great sort of summation of what you're talking about, how, oh, there's no standards for men. You know, it's, it's like, yeah, because a man can literally just, you know, tumble out of bed in his pants, sweaty and smelly and, you know, messed up, and then go on a date with a beautiful woman and she will say nothing, nothing, not a word. I remember seeing a great sort of summary of exactly the, the way that we pretend men don't have expectations to impress women, where it, uh, it was a picture of Barbie and a picture of He-Man. 
And underneath Barbie, it said, this is Barbie, and she is an idealized concept of what femininity should be. She has blonde hair and big blue eyes, and she has large breasts, and she's thin, and she has wide hips. And this is clearly very, very negative for women to see this. And underneath He-Man, it said, this is He-Man. You know, so it's like men do see the the ideal male as, you know, Captain America or James Bond or something. Strong, confident, risk-taking, assertive male who is in good shape, physically healthy, and is prepared to lay down his life to protect the people he loves, particularly the women that he loves. Yeah. Men do see all this as the masculine ideal. Uh, and and they, they feel pressure to emulate it. I mean, look at just the, the, the cliche way that men go up to talk to a woman. Hi, can I buy you a drink? Which is, can I give you a gift so that you might consider giving me a chance to impress you? You know, like as in, they're basically offering a down payment to, to be interviewed by her. And if she takes the drink and, you know, he talks to her for five minutes and she says, I'm not interested, that that's, that's completely fine. And he is expected to walk away from that. And he's not expected to be like, stupid bitch, I gave her my money, I gave her my drink. She should talk to me for at least an hour and she should compliment me more than four times. You know, it's, it's men jump through all these hoops to impress women. Women, I mean, there was a, a, a modeling show that was quite funny. One of these, you know, America's Next Top Models thing where a bunch of really glamorous women who are in the modeling industry were given a challenge where they had a, a rack of clothes to choose from and it was really, really unflattering outfits. It was like dungarees and things like that. And the job was that they had to go to a bar and whoever was bought the most drinks by the end of the night would win. And so these women who are used to standing, looking glamorous and men approaching them would have to go up to men and sort of try and flirt with the men and try and convince the men to buy them a drink. And, and they were like, I never realized how hard this was. I never realized how difficult it is to be rejected so often, you know, and to keep putting yourself out there and to feel to feel bad about yourself, to worry, you know, that you're not pretty and you're not attractive, but to, to just have to plow through it. I didn't, I never thought that was, that was so hard until I was forced to do it. I have an enormous respect and admiration for men who take the courage to go up to a woman and talk to her. I mean, it, just the thought stresses me out. So when someone stops me on the street, uh, I mean, I, I always try my best to be as nice to them as possible because, I mean, it just fascinates me that someone would take that risk. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't. And it's obviously difficult because I don't want to give my number to just any stranger. But sometimes I just end up giving them my number just to kind of make them feel better because it is a huge effort. And I just feel like they deserve a reward for it. And it does take an enormous amount of courage. And that's something they say about dating apps, that men don't experience the same form of rejection when they're swiping on Tinder, because you don't get a notification when someone rejects you. You only get a notification when you get a match. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's much better though, because you know, you swiping right 30 times and receiving no notifications is a, a massive slap in the face. 
You know, that when, when you're sitting alone, staring at your computer screen, you know, just waiting desperately for, for something to go boop or whatever, like, it, it can be incredibly depressing. There's, there's a great video by a young psychologist on YouTube who asked his female friend to set up a Tinder account for him and use his picture. And he says to her, you know, can you pretend to be me? And can you sort of try to find as many girls as, as you can for me within a week? And she thinks that this will be dead easy because as far as she's concerned, he is good looking or, you know, at least, at least moderately good looking. And he's a, a psychologist. He has a good job. Like this will be totally easy and she's more than happy to do it. And by the end of the week, even though it was just a sort of a pseudo test and it's you know it's, it, she doesn't actually have any kind of you know real horse in the race in this he's depressed because the the amount of people that she reached out to who just didn't speak to her so you know she would get this many responses of oh yeah i'm interested and she would write hello blah 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 and they would write hello and then she'd be like how are you and they would just ghost her and and that would keep happening and she'd be like why did you say that you were interested? Why did you talk to me if you were? What the hell is going on? So by the end of it, she actually feels depressed, even though it was just a, a simulation. She's like, this is awful. You know, this, this, because I'm so used to, you know, using Tinder and getting this many notifications and this many yeah. you know, responses and guys are always interested. And even if you know, we don't seem to hit it off. They respond and they're polite and blah, 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 blah. Whereas all these women just ignore me. And he's like, well, did it sort of open your eyes a bit to what it feels like to, to constantly be rejected? And she's like, yeah, I, I had no idea that it was, it was this prevalent. Because I thought, you know, you are, are, are definitely a cut above the average guy and you will not have a problem. So if you are struggling, God help the majority of men. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting one. We should probably wrap up soon, but I'd just like to discuss one final question that's my favorite question to ask people. We talked about a lot of differences between men and women, and I think these are pretty significant. So how can we ever have equality in society given these differences? Is it, is it even worth striving for? What, what would equality even look like? I mean, it's, it's a difficult question and, you know, sometimes I have my doubts. Uh, sometimes I do worry about it, whether it's, it's even compatible with our gynocentric nature to have equality, whether we will always, always drift towards providing and protecting women at the detriment of men. And I think that we are animals and we have instincts but we are also sentient and we can rise above those instincts so we have to try at least you know because otherwise why don't we go and live in the woods you know and and and, and just forage for berries all day if we're going to give up on the idea that we deserve better than what our animalistic nature tells us to do then there's no point in having civilization whatsoever so my opinion is education the more that we can make people aware of this gynocentric society, the more that people understand what is going on and why it's happening, the more that people 
will actively try to make it better because I do believe that that people are good. I I worry sometimes about men and women. Um, and yeah, there there are times where I I worry about women and and think to myself, well, you know, how can they be so oblivious to what's going on? How can they, how can they have fathers and brothers and sons and just not seem to care? that 90% of inmates are male or that 80% of suicides are male or that 75% of the homeless is male. How can they, how can they watch, you know, a woman slapping a man and uh, in a comedy or on the street and laugh at that? How, how does that compute to them? But I do believe that women are good at heart, that feminism exploits women by making them afraid. I think women are, more likely to act selfishly when they're afraid, you know, so because women, they, they know they have to preserve themselves and they know that they're not as strong as men. And so therefore, if they, they have this encroaching fear, they will want to prioritize their safety and they will, they will feel justified in sacrificing men for that safety because that's what they're, instinct tells them to do. Our fear center is the oldest part of our brain and it's the most powerful part of our brain. So if you can really make women afraid, they will act instinctively, which tends to be quite selfish and gynocentric. And if we can liberate women from that, if we can stop telling them that they have a one in four chance of being raped, if we can stop telling them that society is built to oppress them and that nobody cares about the violence or abuse that they they suffer so long as we can make them happy essentially i think that women will do the right thing you know so the first the first step is education everybody needs to be aware of the truth of what's going on none of this full reality where men oppress women and women are victims and abused and that that is the the be all and end all the binary structure of our lives we have to show the world that the West is actually a kind, compassionate and caring place and that women are living a more liberated and privileged life than any other woman has ever lived, any other person has ever lived. Even, even the richest and most powerful men of history would give it all up to experience what women experience today because, because women have access to so much and they have rights and freedoms that the people have never have never had to experience so i haven't lost faith yet but i i think that we we have to work soon we have to get this going because we are as i said approaching a tipping point i think the fact that divorce is happening to uh, half of marriages that we have a, a lower birth rate than we, we can to sustain the society. And even the fact that people are not getting into meaningful relationships until much later in their lives. And children are growing up fatherless and men are burying themselves in escapist things like computer games and pornography and even trying to build robots to replace the intimacy that, that women are denying them because women feel that men don't deserve it anymore because they have this this sense that men are oppressive and, and, and evil. I think once we can get society back on track and open people's eyes to what's really happening, that a lot of these problems will be mitigated.
and that men and women will do what they naturally do, what we know from the fact that we are here right now discussing this, is that they look after each other. So it's ignorance and lies that are keeping us in this prison and education is the, the only way to break out of it. Yeah, yeah, well, you said that very beautifully and yeah, I agree with it wholeheartedly and I'm willing to do everything I can to work towards that goal and I'm hoping to talk to you again and any way we can help support each other and collaborate. I strongly believe that women have a great role to play in this because men will fight any war you want them to. You know, they will fight beasts and monsters and they will fight other men, but they will not fight women. So if you tell them that their own liberties and their own rights come at the expense of women, men won't fight for that. And it's women who have to step up and say, no, we're safe, we're protected, and we know that you deserve this. So don't worry about us. Feminism uses men's fear, their, their great terror of being bad to women to keep men in place. And it's women who are going to have to show them that men's rights and misogyny are not the same thing. Yeah, well, I'm very committed to doing my part. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I think it was a great conversation and I look forward to doing more in the future. I'm incredibly privileged to have been on your show, especially as your first guest. So thank you so much. So what's your Twitter handle, just so people can find you? My Twitter handle is at eccentric hat. Eccentric has a K at the end of it. It's exactly the same for my YouTube as well. Yeah. And also check out MR Radio if you're listening to this. Thank you very much. Speak to you soon. Bye.